0: So please turn with me to the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 17. This is a peculiar sort of Sunday. For starters, it is not every day that the Ravens play a game in London, uh, England, at 9.30 a.m. I'll try try my best not to check the score too much during this sermon, uh, but what what is the score right now? There's no score? Baltimore's losing what? Twenty nothing. What's cool? We're not watching it. Okay. So, (laughs) this Sunday is peculiar for a different reason. You see, when you came to church over the past three weeks, my suspicion is that you didn't come with a whole lot of preconceived notions about the passages that were being preached. Um, This morning, we're continuing our series "Holy and Faithful Mercies": the life of David, life of King David. The first week of the series, we looked at a sermon that was preached by the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts, and while you and I may have had some idea of what the early church looked like, um, my guess is that you didn't come with a ton of bias about Paul's sermon to Antioch Obsidia in Acts 13. If I'm wrong, forgive me. But I'd imagine I could say similar things about the following weeks as well. During week two, we saw David anointed by the prophet Judge Samuel. Uh, we saw this shepherd boy, the youngest of a pile of brothers, um, tapped by Israel's prophet to supplant Saul as Israel's next king, and you may or may not have been familiar with that story. Um, and then in week three, Jason told us about King Saul uh, and his tormented soul being soothed by David's plane of the lyre, and you may have heard about that episode in that Leonard Cohen song, Hallelujah. Um, but then again, maybe not. The truth is, there, there are a lot of stories in the Bible that we have kind of a general knowledge of, and there's even more that we've just never read before, or let alone maybe have heard a sermon about it, but that's not the story this week, is it? This week, the next chapter in the David story is the story of David and Goliath, and I'm willing to bet that every person in this room has had Heard some version of this story in in one way or another. In fact, it's possible that there are some of you who are familiar with the story and didn't even realize it was a Bible story. The truth is, whether they are true or not, there are stories, there are some stories that have a deep impact on our culture. Some are specific to that culture. If you wanted to be an expert on the American Revolution, you'd want to familiarize yourself with the tragedy play Cato. If you wanted to better understand 20th century American culture, you would do well to be familiar with the myth of Superman. Other stories, though, they stand the test of time. The story of David and Goliath is an ancient story that is several thousand years old about a young man who boldly takes the field of battle and is victorious against an intimidating opponent because he believed wholeheartedly that the Lord was on his side. Now I've heard a l- I've had a lot of fun studying this this week. I-, I got to spend time reading commentators like Walter Brueggemann and Eugene Peterson. I read social commentary from Malcolm Gladwell, who uh, wrote a recent book themed on the story. Uh, I studied ancient military history of the late Bronze Age and the culture of the Philistines. You know who were they? Where did they come from? Uh, why were they fighting with Israel? And and all of that added fascinating detail. Um, And we're going to get to a good bit of that in a moment. But before I could do any of that, I needed to do business with the role of this story, the role that this story has played in the life of the church. This is a beloved tale that frequently appears in Sunday school curriculum. And it's thrown around. Oh, it's a David and Goliath story or something like that. You hear about it in sports all the time. Uh, So because of that, Walter Brueggemann was helpful But if I wanted to get at, like, why this means so much to the church, Bob the Tomato was essential. You know? VeggieTales interprets this story with a simple principle. Goliath's big, God's bigger. And when I think of him is when I figure, with his help, little guys can do big things too. An accurate interpretation of the text, to be sure and a principle that should be taught to God's children, young and old. Still, the text we have before us is a 58-verse tale filled with details that have probably been forgotten because we have assumed that the story should only be told to children. So my request for us this morning is that we consider maybe a PG-13 story of David and Goliath. David and Goliath, read it again for the first time. The story takes place some 3,000 years ago in the southern hill country of the land occupied by the tribes of Israel. Uh, Israel had received the land from God as a thing promised to them generations earlier. God had allowed numbers to increase, led them out of slavery in the land of Egypt, aided them in the wilderness until finally equipping them to conquer the promised land. The problem was that over the years, the people repeatedly lost faith in God and gave into their fears And into their idolatry. For the first few centuries, Israel was led by judges who were these charismatic leaders who helped the people unite against common threats. One of the most common threats came from the Philistines, who were probably sea people, not sea creatures. Sea people who were turned back after attempting to invade Egypt. See, Egypt was successful, they were a very strong power, but, they were, also, but the, they were also weakened, and that allowed the Philistines to kind of move into the northeast of Canaan and kind of settle along the coasts there, which put them at odds with Israel. We're told at the beginning of the story, in 1 Samuel 17, the Philistines gathered their armies for battle at Soka, which belonged to the tribe of Judah. In response, King Saul amassed his army, traveled to the Valley of Elah, and formed ranks against the Philistines. The Philistines stood on one mountain, the mountain on one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley in between them. So think about this from a military point of view. This meant that whoever decided to attack first would sacrifice the high ground and leave themselves vulnerable to attack. Um, That... uh, would force them also to kind of do this suicidal trek up their enemy's hill. The Philistines made the first move. They sent out a champion called Goliath, an intimidated, intimidating warrior who was at least seven feet tall. He had a bronze helmet, a heavy coat of mail, bronze shin guards, and a bronze javelin, probably which was a sword, um, and a spear of which the head alone weighed 15 pounds. Preceded by his shield-bearer, Goliath took the battlefield and he says to Saul's army, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and you're not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves. Let him come down to me. If he is able to fight me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, you shall be our servants and serve us. Today I defy the ranks of Israel. Give me a man who who may fight together. If the Philistines sought to conquer Israel, see, they didn't want to spoil their reward. They wanted to enslave the losers and gain the resources of the land. Medicine was a joke, and there were no hospitals to tend to injured in battle. Goliath says, Listen, guys, we don't need to go through all that. Just send out your best warrior to fight me, and we'll settle this one-on-one. The problem was, Goliath was this huge, intimidating, giant man who clearly looked like he uh, would make quick work of just about anyone, and this terrified Israel. So among Israel's army was David's three oldest brothers, Eliab, Abinadab, and Shammah. Each day, they'd see Goliath come out, ask for a challenger, and when no one would step up, they'd go back to camp. And this went on for 40 days. The whole time, David was still in charge of his family's sheep. So he would go back and forth from his family's farm to the battlefield. And on one visit, his father David asked uh, asked him to bring some food to his brothers and get an update on the situation. And David arrived. He saw something stirring. The armies looked like they were drawing up for battle. He left the food with a baggage handler and ran to the ranks to meet his brothers. And then David heard Goliath, perhaps perhaps for the first time, repeat his challenge. And then David heard Goliath. He, he also these, he heard these murmurs of the troops in the army who each hoped that they wouldn't have to be the one who would go up against Goliath. They're like, have you seen that guy? He'd kill me in a second. David hears this and he says, Well, that's not what's going to happen to the guy who defeats him? And the troops say, Well, no, he'll be well taken care of, of course. Um, that's for sure. <laughs> but lots of luck finding a guy who's gonna take on that dude. David says, Well, hold on a minute. Um, we're the people of Israel. Uh we've been like chosen by the God of the universe um to bless the world. Um he says who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? See, finally, we get the first mention of God in the story. And fittingly, it's from the mouth of David. David challenges the fear of these troops by hitting them at the very core of their being. He challenges them to remember their identity as God's chosen people. Remember that Anytime we hear Israel in the story, anytime Israel comes up in the Bible, the first thing that we should think of is the identity of God's chosen people. He challenges them to remember that identity. And David's brother Eliab says, um, he kind of like, he's like, "Um, can I talk to you for a second? Um, What are you doing? You're embarrassing me. Who's watching the sheep? You know <laughs> And David just doubles down, and he starts shouting back at the army the same thing as he said before. He says, "You're the people of God. You have the most powerful force in the world on your side. You have the living God on your side, the one who created life itself. Don't be afraid of some bully." And I'm reading into the text, but I imagine that David, with, with perhaps just like the slightest quiver in his voice, I'll do it. And I thought, of, I thought of Frodo. I thought of Frodo at the Council of Elrond. While everyone else that is much taller and bigger and more powerful is kind of arguing over the best way of what needs to be done and kind of arguing about how to get out of this, he says, I'll do it! Maybe with that little quiver in his voice, I'll do it. I'm going to take the ring to Mordor. hit. David, David's words somehow make it back to the king's ears. And Saul sends for him, of course. And it would have been extremely peculiar that um, just anyone would come into the presence of the king and speak first. But David is not just anyone. He walks right into the king's tent and he says, Let no one's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight this Philistine. And perhaps perhaps Saul had gotten his hopes up, you know, kind of expecting some big brave warrior to walk in the door. And then he sees David and uh, his heart sinks. You can't fight the Philistine. You know, Goliath's been a warrior his entire life. You're you're just a boy. You're just a shepherd. David says, you're right. I'm just a boy, Uh, the youngest of my brothers. And because I'm the youngest of my brothers, I'm a shepherd. And I spent an awful lot of time out there in the fields alone with no one but the sheep to keep me company. I got pretty attached to those sheep but I took the job seriously. I cared for them. And I found the darndest thing. Whenever a lion or a a bear would come and, and try to take one of the sheep from the flock, I'd go after it. I'd strike down the predator and rescue the lamb from its mouth. If it turned against me, I'd catch it by the jaw. I'd strike it down and I'd kill it. Your servant has killed both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them since he has defied the armies of the living God. The God who saved me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will save me from the hand of the Philistine. And before we move on, there's two things I don't want us to miss. First, there's a common understanding of the story that sees David... Desiring to go into battle with Goliath, Goliath, almost like recklessly, as someone who um, has no experience whatsoever with the physical dangers of this world, Um, we may be fooled into thinking that David's faith in the living God allowed him to walk into battle a totally inexperienced little guy. The, The truth is that David was being prepared and shaped by his experience as a shepherd. At the time, it it may have looked like he was just doing his job. Then again, it may have looked like he was doing some rather remarkable things, you know, wrestling bears and all. Regardless, he may have spent years doing these seemingly meaningless things that one day came to bear in a moment when God asked him to step up. And that's a powerful word for us today. David didn't go into battle an inexperienced little boy. He went into battle a young man who was experienced with the skills that God wanted him to have. And before we move on, let me me ask you, what common tasks fill your days? Many of us worked in food service as teenagers, and I don't know about you, but um, that experience has taught me something about having uh, patience with people. Which, as it turns out, has come in handy in ministry. Um, and it doesn't end with our youth. Let me ask you again um, what's filling your days? What muscles and skill is God building up in you that could one day be used for something else? Um, do you think David was scared of Goliath? I bet he was, just about as scared as he was of that bear. But he had repeatedly experienced God's faithfulness in not just magically defeating the bear, but in building up his skills necessary for him to do the job with his own two hands. It would be that experience and that skill which he would need to go onto that battlefield, and not the armor that Saul would try to give him. He wouldn't fit into anyone else's story but his own. It may have been easy for David to assume that he needed to to put on some some big heavy helmet and some big heavy coat of mail and carry this huge cumbersome sword. After all, that's what Goliath was doing. That was what Goliath was wearing. The second thing I don't want us to miss is that Saul had quite a bit to lose on this. In a sense, he was putting more on the line than David was. He was the king of Israel. This type of single combat wasn't unheard of in the ancient world. There are examples of this in Egyptian, Babylonian, and Greek history. But if David lost, it meant the enslavement of Israel. And perhaps the evidence, um, the evidence that God had somehow forgotten Israel. David knew that wasn't possible, but did Saul? David uses God's name when he calls God Yahweh. He saved him from the bear of the lion. He says, Yahweh saved me from the bear and the lion. There was something about David's words that stirred something in Paul. Enough that when Saul gives the consent, he uses the Lord's name. Saul even says, go and may Yahweh be with you. Never doubt the effect that the faith of a follower can have on the leader. See, the Philistines were a big threat. Goliath was a big threat, but the biggest threat in this story is the loss of faith that Israel had, and that that not only Israel had, but that the loss of the faith that their king had in their deliverer Yahweh. We only catch a glimpse of the full story here, but it would appear that um, the faith of David in the living God has had this powerful effect on his king and on his countrymen. If David had gone into that tent blaming Saul for his unfaithfulness, the king may have thrown him out on his butt, but instead David swallowed his pride and he refers to himself repeatedly as the king's servant. And he serves that king by reminding him of the God who was in charge. Instead of Saul's armor and Saul's shield, David leaves Saul's tent, walks over to a dry stream, you might see the word wadi there, it just means uh, uh, dry stream, and fills a shepherd's bag with five smooth stones. And with a slingshot in his hand, he steps onto the field of battle and walks toward the warrior Goliath. Goliath sees this young pretty boy coming down the hill with no armor on his back and no sword in his hand, and David walks confidently up to the giant man, and Goliath begins to laugh and says, am I a dog that you're coming to me with sticks? It appeared that Israel wasn't taking this very seriously. Come to me, said Goliath, and I'm going to give the flesh, your, the, your flesh to the birds of the air um, and the wild animals of the field. And in that moment, perhaps David's mind flashed back to the first time he was called upon to rescue a a lamb from the mouth of a bear. And if he took one misstep, the bear might have uh, given up on the lamb and gone after him instead. A bear or a lion could peel the flesh off of David's bones and leave whatever they didn't want to the birds and the wild animals, but David had become quite good with a slingshot. In fact, slingers who were part of the ancient artillery, were deadly if they were accurate. Imagine if a, a major league pitcher threw a rock. If David had years of practice hunting wild animals, this big clumsy man with a ton of bronze armor weighing him down shouldn't be much of a problem. All he had to do was aim for a weak spot and All of that was on top of the fact that he was convinced that he had the living God on his side. The God of Israel. The God who was with him in the wild. This God was on his side. And now David looks at Goliath with confidence and says, You come to me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. This very day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and I will cut off your head and I will give the bodies of the Philistine army this very day to the birds of the air and the wild animals of the earth so that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And all of this assembly may know that the Lord does not save by sword and spear. The battle itself is the Lord's and he will give you into my hand. Let's get it on. Goliath took one step forward and David runs into, battle, into the battle line to meet him. He, David put his hand in his bag, took out a stone, slung it, struck the Philistine directly in the forehead. He had five stones, only needed one. The stone stank, sank into his forehead and he fell face, on the, face down on the ground. David didn't wait for someone else to go over and confirm the kill. He ran over to Goliath's body, picked up the giant sword, drew it out of its sheath, kill them, and then cut off his head. The Philistine army was horrified, (laughs) and they were chased away by the advancing Israel troops who were now all kinds of, you know, enthused. David took the head of Goliath and brought it to Jerusalem, but not before putting the giant's armor in his own tent. Saul then goes on a hunt to find out the backstory of this young man. Who had somehow defeated the Philistine army? David, the soon to be king, answers with humility I am the son of your servant Jesse, the Bethlehemite. See, we're going to take communion in a moment, um, but I want this story to sit with us just for a moment. It's a violent story. God was big or Goliath was big, God was bigger. And when we think of him is when we figure that with his help, little guys can do big things too. Israel celebrated a victory, but it was only a victorious battle. See, the war, it kept on being fought. The superpowers of the day would continue to threaten Israel until the people of God found themselves under the thumb of Roman oppression. Rome was a giant of the day. And the hold that they had on the people of Israel must have terrified them. How could anyone fight a power so big? The thing about it was, by the time we get to the Roman Empire and Israel's occupation of Rome, the, 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 the enemy never was Rome. Sure, the, the armies will continue to fight, and the powers that be will continue to have a foothold on those who are weaker, But when Jesus, the soon to be king, walked onto the battlefield to face the giant, it was the giant of death itself that he sought to destroy. Paul tells us that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our our Lord. See, when Jesus walked onto the battlefield, he didn't take his sword. And he didn't take his armor. He took the only thing that could actually defeat the enemy once and for all. Sacrificial love. And that's the victory he calls us into because we are more than conquerors in Christ. Our communion table at New Hope is an open table. And we invite all those who call upon the name of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior to come forward. If you do not worship Jesus as king, you shouldn't feel obligated to participate. Uh, The bread is unleavened, the red is wine, and the white is grape juice. Uh, First, though, would you please stand uh, and join us as churches throughout the centuries have done in the reading of the Nicene Creed.